Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. ESG has become established as a key business theme as companies and investors seek to navigate the climate crisis, energy transition, social megatrends, mounting regulatory tension, and pressure from other stakeholders. The rapidly evolving landscape has become inundated with acronyms, buzzwords, and lingo, and we aim to break these down with industry experts. Welcome to ESG Currents, brought to you by Bloomberg Intelligence, your guide to navigating the evolving ESG space one topic at a time. I'm Rob Duboff, Senior ESG Analyst, your host for today's episode. We've talked in the past about the growing interest in ESG investing. Corporate America has increasingly leaned in on these issues, with the Business Roundtable releasing a new statement on the purpose of a corporation in 2019, endorsing the view of what is referred to as stakeholder capitalism. But per Newton's third law, every action has an opposite reaction. A number of conservatives have become quite vocal in their objections to both the principles and practices of ESG investing. Several major candidates in the Republican primary have made this a core issue of their campaigns, including Ron DeSantis, who has publicly feuded with Disney over social policy, and Vivek Ramaswamy literally wrote the book on criticisms of so-called woke corporations. In an effort to better understand the concerns from the right over ESG, we're joined today by Scott Shepard. Scott is a fellow at the National Center for Public Policy Research, a conservative think tank. He is also the director of the National Center's Free Enterprise Project, which is the, quote, original and premier opponent of the woke takeover of America. We certainly don't see eye to eye on whatever ESG is just proper due diligence or a liberal takeover of the capital markets, but I do think it's important discussion for everyone in the ESG world to understand. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to be with you, Rob. So, Scott, let's start at the top. In your view, what's wrong with institutional investors accounting for environmental, social, and governance factors in their analysis? Well, you mentioned the Business Roundtable and its uh, uh, redefinition of the corporation in in, uh, August of 2019. As it happens, the Business Roundtable is just a luncheon club for CEOs who should really be able to afford to buy their own lunches. They don't have any legal power. 
the uh, the decision about what the definition of a corporation is is in law and it's in state law. And the heart of the whole idea of corporations and of corporate law is that uh, shareholder the executives and directors are really just the managers for the owners, the shareholders, and they have an objective uh, duty to act on behalf of a neutral, uh, reasonable shareholder and to serve that shareholder by uh, uh, maintaining and increasing the value of the corporation uh, uh, without consent doing any uh, uh, self-dealing, without mm-hmm. looking at their own personal interests, including their own personal policy. And so what you see in ESG is movement away from what the law requires to doing what the CEOs want to do for themselves. For instance, uh, you can't you can't do anything on behalf of all stakeholders because stakeholders have different interests. If we didn't have as stakeholders, because stakeholders include the environment communities and every possible human constituency, so stakeholders are everyone and everything. Everyone and everything don't agree about what ought to be done about anything at all and don't have the same uh, objective or subjective interests. So when CEOs pretend to do things for the benefits of all stakeholders. What they're really doing is picking the stakeholders who share their personal policy preferences and enacting their personal policy preferences while sock puppeting the the relevant convenient stakeholders. And so the problem with ESG is that it upends the law, it violates the law, it violates fiduciary duty, and um, is is, uh, an excuse to allow corporate executives uh, to do their personal policy preferences uh, rather than uh, their duty. And as it happens, and part of why we're, we uh, uh, as a conservative libertarian organization uh, are opposed to this is because it works out that these personal policy preferences turn out to be the same primary uh, goals as the whole government initiatives of the current administration. Mm-hmm. They aren't bipartisan. They're not, not nonpartisan. They're primarily equity-based discrimination, which is a whole-of-government initiative of the Biden administration, and political schedule decarbonization, which is is the other whole-of-government initiative of the Biden administration. So what we see is a violation of fiduciary duty, a violation of corporate law, in order to achieve very partisan and one-sided political and policy goals. All right. I guess, uh, you know, we can we can disagree on what information is fundamentally material to a reasonable investor, but, but don't money managers have a fiduciary duty for issues to, to focus on issues they believe are clearly financially material? Let's say, for example, you know, occupational health and safety in the manufacturing company or maybe access to water for a beverage company. Well, consider the, the climate uh, issue. Larry Fink and lots of others have said that climate risk is financial risk. Okay. Under a certain set of assumptions and theories, climate risk is a financial risk, but so is everything else in that ambit. If you're going to pick which risks are financial risks and you draw a a standard, we're going to include things that are tangentially related to our bottom line or that have traditionally been treated as matters for the polity rather than for private corporations um, to determine and to be involved in. You have to consider all of the relevant risks that arise in the whole of that category. So not just the risks of not decarbonizing, but the risks of decarbonizing according to a politically determined schedule if the technology is not available or if the costs result in other harms, harms of 
the deterioration of the, the living standards of consumers or other stakeholders, et cetera, et cetera. You can't just pick, if you're just picking uh, and labeling as financial risk that, that uh, companies have to consider, the ones that serve certain partisan goals, then, you, then, then you're not as a CEO, as a director of a company acting objectively and neutrally, you are serving personal policy preferences under the guise of talking about financial risks. So it's considered you know, prudent to tell people to consult a lawyer before signing a legal document. Why should we not leave it up to professional money managers to determine what are and are not financially material risks? Well, when there's increasing and obvious, I mean, when there's overwhelming evidence that the decisions are being made not on the basis of objective full consideration based on non-biased and complete evidence and review and study, but instead it's hand in glove with one side of the partisan debate in this country, then the presumption of objectivity has to be set aside. And the fact on the ground that all of this ESG stuff pushes left-wing policy goals, none of it uh, embraces anything from the center or the right. When that's the fact, then just saying, oh, gosh, golly, I guess they're not uh, using political personal policy preferences. This is all just happenstance. That's not an acceptable response. Right. So, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't disagree that that there tends to be kind of this, you know, ESG is almost too big an umbrella. But would you agree kind of under a narrow scope and, you know, with the focus purely on financial materiality, that there is room for some analysis of you know the intangibles on the balance sheet, whether it's, you know, the natural capital that that companies have to rely on to produce their goods and services, the human capital they need um, either from their customers or their employees, you know, is, is there some room for that kind of analysis in your view? You could either do uh, very little of that or all of it, which is to say, if you've got a narrow focus on the bottom line and you decide uh, issues that, uh, that, our corporation has little control over, like climate policy or, or the, the, the total amount of carbon being put into the world's atmosphere. And so we're going to not get involved in any of that analysis at all. That's one uh, uh, objectively appropriate, uh, fiduciarily appropriate choice. Or you can say, we're going to consider all of the world's problems and treat them all uh, uh, as appropriate financial risks. Uh, as, as genuine financial risks, and we're going to consider how much we contribute to each of them, all of them, not in a partisan way, but we're going to consider um, uh, the all, all potential concerns at the same level of abstraction, as it were, abstraction in relationship to our bottom line. But you can't get into that higher level of abstraction and then pick and choose, and then gosh golly, the ones that we've chosen to focus on all advance one side of, of partisan debate. I mean, I, th I think it's definitely fair when you're talking about, you know, the, the climate transition. I know there are certain constituencies who, you know, who just, you know, would switch to renewables overnight. Whereas I do, you know, I do agree that there are a multitude of problems, and, and each one has an impact on on different stakeholders, and they all need to w be weighed appropriately. You know, how do we continue to have affordable access to reliable energy? Um, you know, in a world where you know we continue to see extreme weather, um, while at the same time also, um, you know creating innovation, um, and some of these new technologies. Just um, kind of pivoting a little bit on this, but 
you know, do you think it's appropriate as a free market conservative to see government legislators or prosecutors dictating how money managers or corporations should act with regard to ESG? Well, it's it's at the heart of uh, free markets and of the American corporate structure that CEOs and executives are constrained by fiduciary duty, that they may not do their personal policy preferences, that they have to act on behalf of, of an objective, neutral, um, reasonable shareholder. And so insofar as CEOs are getting away from that and setting up smoke screens, but doing their personal policy preferences or Larry Fink's personal policy preferences because he forced them into that position by forcing behaviors, as he's bragged about so often. When, when that occurs, then what we're not seeing is a shrinking of agency costs, which is what uh, the corporate laws and corporate structures are supposed to are supposed to achieve in respect for the ultimate owners of corporations. Instead, we're seeing an insurrection by the managers, by CEOs and directors, putting their personal policy preferences, their partisan politics ahead of their, their objective duties. And that's not free market capitalism. That's not any kind of capitalism at all. That's uh, managerial, uh, uh, progressive managerial theories, you know, the expert uh, rule of government by the experts or self-appointed experts shifted over to the corporate setting where um, you've got a class of Davos, Davos going CEOs who think that they should be able to run the world from their C-suites without being elected or appointed according to their personal policy preferences. That's that's not pro-free market. But then is it OK for a state to say to a bank that, you know, even if you've done your due diligence and say that we don't want to lend to uh, a retailer that has maybe, you know, lax policies on on the sale of handguns because it might ultimately open us up to liabilities. You know, if you're a, if you as a state then say, you know, it's illegal to do that kind of analysis, even if it isn't the fiduciary duty as as a bank. I, I mean, is that appropriate? Well, I mean, I think that if um, banks are conducting that analysis in a in an objective way with regard to every possible risk and every possible um, uh, uh, down the down the line consideration, um, that that is. Uh, that that might be appropriate. But what we've seen in these laws is saying you don't get to pick and choose. Bank, you have to be objective in, in if you're going to play out these potential long-term risk scenarios, you have to do them with all possible risks. If you're picking, and once again, if, if you're, you're particularly focusing on um, gun risks, when somehow, gosh golly, we've got a situation where uh, these Big corporations are once again acting in in uh, specific ways to identify risks that just happen to fit with the left wing uh, partisan agenda. And when you see that again and again and again, and are told, "Oh no, they're just doing uh, objective work and they're considering all risks," and it just happens that every single one uh, that that they act on uh, fits the left wing agenda, then it's it's illegitimate to to uh, well. It's it's absurd to accept their claims that they're acting neutrally and with regard to all risks equally. I mean, fair enough, but I, you know, I, I, it does seem that that there's a bit of that on both sides. I mean, you take Texas for example. Um, you know, they they were calling some of the big asset managers um, for a hearing down there, and then all of a sudden, one of them decides to pull out of some uh, global uh, net zero initiatives, and then all of a sudden, they're you know they haven't changed any a single policy other than they're no longer a member, all of a sudden that 
the uh, authorities suddenly just let them go. No more questions asked. I mean, just, doesn't that kind of give the appearance of, of trying to of the state trying to pick winners and losers? I, I might have said, well, fine, you got out of that organization. But until you change the policies, you're going to be right here with the rest of them. That's that's a, a, a facial move, but it's not a, a genuine one. But remember, a lot of what's going on in these states right now is simply states saying, look, the, the, the assets of this state, the polity of this state has, has demonstrated that it doesn't favor left-wing, personal poli- uh, left-wing policy goals, uh, on average, certainly. And we're going to objectively as a state, as the manager of the state's monies, uh, evaluate corporations and where we see that somehow it says it's doing ESG for all stakeholders, but what it's really doing is is using private assets and, in fact, this state's assets to enact and, and further left wing personal uh, left wing policy preferences, left wing policy goals. Then we're not going to have the state's assets be used in that way or flow to those uh, companies that are acting in that partisan way. As stewards of the state's wealth and protectors of the 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 uh, interests of those populations, they have every right to do. Turning now to shareholder proposals, which I know is something you're 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 um, you're pretty active in. We've seen we've seen a surge in shareholder proposals in the last two years plus, uh, mainly for reasons we'll get into in a minute. But based on the data Bloomberg tracks for the largest three thousand U.S. companies, there were about three hundred forty proposals tagged for either environmental or social issues. In the 12 months through June 2023, what we call the proxy season, and that's up over 80% from just two years ago. And while the majority support ESG policies, we've also seen a number of conservative proposals, including quite a few from your organization. First off, can you tell our listeners what a shareholder proposal is, what it tries to accomplish, and then walk us through the type of proposals the National Center has submitted? Sure. Uh, Shareholder proposals are um, proposals... uh, I mean, the name sort of gives it away. It's uh, proposals submitted by shareholders um, uh, to that, that seek specific uh, action by companies. These are usually fairly precatory. What they'll ask for is a report by the board of directors, which means somebody will be assigned, and then the board and the board will read it and review it and, uh, and approve it. But but uh, a report audit by the board of directors to look into something. Uh, about the company's behavior that's concerning to uh, to those investors and then those those shareholders. And then once a, a proposal is, is sent to the company, the company right now has the option to ask the SEC if it will issue a no action letter, which is to say a letter that will determine whether uh, the SEC will take action if the corporation excludes that proposal from its ballot. And then if the proposal gets onto the ballot, if it gets past that no action uh, review process from the SEC, then um, either other shareholders or, and I suspect this will come up further in our conversation, people who uh, vote other people's proxies, investment houses that vote their proxies, the, the, the shareholders, the, the investors who invest with them, vote on these resolutions on the proxy ballot. And most of them fail, but but sometimes uh, a few of them succeed. Right, and and then tell me about some of the proposals you've you've submitted in recent years. Uh, we've uh, well, a lot of what we do is reactive to what the left has done for thirty years. I've got to give the other side credit for this. They saw the value of shareholder proposals thirty years ago, and mm-hmm. on the right, 
pretty much nobody did. We were the first organization on the right to get involved in in uh, in shareholder activism that wasn't explicitly left. But that was only 15 years ago when we were all alone. Uh, we're, we're a small shop. And so we were the, the fire bell in the night for quite a long time. That right. changed after you mentioned the, the 2019 uh, luncheon club declaration of, of what corporations were going to be now. And, and then later, the, the riot summer of 2020, corporations all very, very performatively came out and supported equity. And then only later, I think, found out that what, what they'd signed up for, equity, is uh, affirmative discrimination on the basis of race, sex, and orientation. So affirmative illegal discrimination until equalities of outcome are reached. So discrimination to achieve socialism. That's, that's not an awesome program for uh, for an American corporation, for any corporation, for all sorts of reasons. So because we, we on the right have been in a reactive posture and because the momentum is so far on the left and corporations have moved so much to the left, uh, what we tend to spend a lot of time doing is is uh, just trying to, to push back against what's happening in, corporate, uh, in, the, in, in that leftward movement. So for instance, uh, we have proposals. There are all sorts of proposals from the left seeking uh, to push companies to do racial equity audits, which is to say explicitly to determine um, whether there are differences in outcome uh, between racial groups, sex groups, orientation groups, uh, has led to many companies um, adopting explicitly discriminatory policies on the basis of race, sex, or orientation. For instance, paying uh, black uh, companies led by um, scare quotes diverse uh, owners more money for the exact same work than suppliers that are owned by white workers. You know, no, no number of companies do that. So one of our one proposal that we've we've put out fairly recently in the last year or two is a proposal asking, you know, you company have embraced a lot of these explicitly discriminatory programs. Could you do a report and audit while you're doing all these others just to just to look at all your programs, make sure that you're not violating the civil rights of scare quotes, non-diverse employees when you're doing all of this facial uh, discrimination. Um, we've also had some proposals asking companies that have gotten uh, uh, that have made commitments to decarbonizing according to political schedules because they say their carbon risk is a financial risk. We say, all right, we'll, we'll accept that. But, but now you need to consider all of the other risks that flow from decarbonizing according to this schedule. What if the technology is not there? What are the environmental damages that arise from scare quotes, green power? What if the costs are illegitimately high? What if you're considering, oh, and by the way, how much is this company's contribution to the world's carbon emissions each year? And what will be the change in the world's temperature if we were to zero out according to the, the plan that you have? What's the cost-benefit analysis? And then some others. Uh, uh, we've got some China ones that I think uh, that's the one area that the left and right, I would hope, could, could uh, uh, agree on, that mm -hmm. nobody wants to see anything made from from slave labor or, or uh, forced labor or anything monstrous like that, uh, be it in China or elsewhere. But another set of proposals we have, there are an awful lot of proposals from the left that say, um, company, you should uh, consider 
the dangers of not embracing an abortion maximalist policy, the, the financial risks uh, from that. We respond not with proposals trying to push corporations to the right, but just asking them, hey, why don't you, company, consider the risks of having any opinion at all about abortion? Why don't you just keep your mouth shut? I think, you know, certainly we've, we've seen some of that rhetoric around, um, you know, recent brands, Budweiser and, and Target, um, you know, where there there has been a risk um, involved in weighing in. Is that something that is that the kind of issue that you're um, advocating companies should stay away from? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Target gave $50 million. Or this, this is the reporting and Target, as far as we can tell, hasn't denied it. Target gave $50 million to an organization called GLSEN. G-L-S-E-N. Um, it is an organization, one of the main purposes of which is to train teachers to keep any sort of gender dysphoria problems or any other problems that arise in that in that template, in that arena, uh, with children from the parents of those children. Target's main demographic is middle-class moms. The idea that it should give 10 under fiduciary duty, give $50 million to an organization trying to keep those moms in the dark about developmental or other problems that their kids might have, that's insane. Target is in terrible trouble. Uh, financially, its its stock price uh, was down before this controversy and then fell significantly further. And I think we have a lot of basis for this. We are uh, suggesting to companies, as you say, just, just stay out of this stuff. It can't help you uh, to get involved on either side. You're supposed to be an objective and neutral organization. Go back to thinking about the bottom line and stop doing your... your uh, CEO's left-wing politics. But like in the case of Disney, I think, you know, from what we, we heard, one of the reasons they ultimately did get involved is that a lot of their workforce, um, you know, was unhappy with with the company's initial response. And especially in a tight labor market, I mean, isn't there something to be said for, um, you know, listening to your employees and, and um, even your customers and, 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 you know, knowing that you may alienate some, but on balance, you know, you think that, you know, with your cal- your business calculus, that the political decision you're making will have more pros than cons. Part of the problem that arises in these corporations, you know, a lot of them have affinity groups, employee affinity groups. But if you look at company after company after company, all of the employee affinity groups they have are for scare quotes diverse minorities. All right. So, with your share, going back to your shareholder proposals, uh, you know. You mentioned that you're trying to find the middle ground, but very few of these shareholders' proposals passed to begin with. Yeah. Getting a third of shareholders to vote in favor is considered a major win. But even with that low bar, um, these proposals, um, these anti-woke or conservative proposals tend to get very limited support. Uh, why do you think that is? Oh, it's, that's 100% because the institutional um, arbiters of these things, ISS and Glass Lewis, the proxy advisory services, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, uh, the institutional uh, uh, investors, in institutional investment houses, have all in lockstep supported to some degree or other, but uh, left of center proposals. And not one of those five has ever so far uh, supported one single right of center proposal. Now, Larry Fink has gone out and said uh, in his he doesn't do annual letters to CEOs anymore, but in previous annual letters to CEOs, he said, look, we force behaviors. 
on companies. And the behaviors we force are equity, discrimination against the, against the non-diverse, and political schedule decarbonization. And the voting record at BlackRock has, has backed that up. They never support any center-right proposals. Now, that's not because no investors at BlackRock take the, the center-right position. It's not because uh, Larry Fink has done all of the analysis and discovered, or all the folks at BlackRock have done all the analysis and decided that not discriminating against the non-diverse is bad for the bottom line and discriminating against the diverse is good for the bottom line. It's not because he's considered, well, if climate risk is financial risk, what about all the financial risks of, of if our analysis is wrong or if uh, American companies decarbonize, but China's uh, companies don't, India's companies don't, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's because he's used his personal policy preferences to direct the way um, BlackRock has voted. ISS and uh, State Street, ISS's uh, CEO, Gary uh, Ritelny, put out a letter in June saying, oh, gosh, we're not apolitical. We're, uh, we're apolitical. We're not partisan. We support about half of E and S shareholder proposals. I, I wrote him a letter and said, you know, well, you are absolutely 100% partisan and you demonstrated in your letter because if you support, if 52% of the E and S proposals you support, uh, you, you support 52% of them uh, each year, that means that you support about 60% of left shareholder proposals because you've never in your history, ISS, supported any proposals from the center-right, and they're about 10% of the total ENS proposals anymore. So your batting average, instead of being apolitical, you're 60 to zero or left partisan. And, and Glass-Lewis uh, has been the same way. And so what you're seeing in the difference between the vote totals is not um, a reflection of what final, ultimate, uh, investors and shareholders think it's what these insurrectionist intermediaries think and what what they're doing with those assets in very partisan ways. But even though our our uh, numbers up through 2023 have remained very low, we might see a change in that this year. But um, the difference between 2022 and 2023 is that the numbers for the left wing proposed fell by about a third from, I, I don't, these numbers aren't exactly right, from about 33% to about 22%. Because we're there, we're illustrating with every proposal we submit, how absolutely partisan left-wing and personal policy preference driving has been Larry Fink and BlackRock, Ron O'Hanley and State Street, um, and ISS and Glass-Lewis and, uh, and Vanguard as well. And so um, when we show up and we push corporations to neutral, not only do we, are, are, are we, I think, beginning to make it difficult to support nothing on our side, but we also make it more clear that all of this previous support for the left-wing proposals has been absolutely partisan and demonstrates the partisan uh, orientation of these five big players. As a believer in the free markets, I mean, why don't you have an asset manager come out and say, you know, we're going to do the opposite. I know we've we've seen some start to pop up, but you know they're not really, you know, getting that much traction. Uh, you know, could you argue that ultimately the asset owner, um, you know, stands behind some of the things BlackRock's doing, and that's why, 
you know, they're continuing to grow their assets under management? No, I, I don't think that follows at all. The, the amount of money, so there are ESG and non-ESG. Uh, BlackRock has ESG labeled vehicles and non-ESG labeled vehicles. We've seen a significant movement away from the ESG labeled vehicles and toward the non-ESG labeled vehicles. I think that suggests that um, investors uh, are not interested in companies being run for partisan ESG goals. They want uh, maximum uh, returns. Uh, they want they want that to be what their investment houses and their companies are thinking of. I think that most of these investors believe Larry Fink when he offers ESG and non-ESG uh, investments and uh, that he's following his fiduciary duty and not using the non-ESG denominated investments to push ESG goals, but both in the behavior forcing and in the boats in the in uh, the black uh, the BlackRock um, benchmark policy, what you see is all of the assets of BlackRock being used to push ESG goals, which strikes me as material rep- misrepresentation as an initial matter. But I think that if you look at the polling, if you look at the migration out of ESG denominated assets. What you have to conclude is that this isn't the final will of the ultimate investors. This is um, shady. Uh, uh, um, this is this is playing fast and loose uh, with terms, and I think misusing um, the power created by non-ESG labeled investment. Yeah, but it's not like. You know, BlackRock is voting for every single ESG proposal. Um, you know, even though they there's definitely, you know, I would agree there's they're definitely far more likely to vote for a, a pro ESG than an anti ESG proposal. It's not like they're voting for either one of them in, in droves. Uh, you know, you mentioned that support has gone down, and I'd argue that a lot of that has to do with the proposals going further left and further right. Um, but in general, it, you know, I, I don't think it's, I wouldn't care characterize BlackRock as voting in, for, in favor of every single ESG proposal. If if that were the case, then then I would th- suspect that far more of them would pass than, than currently do. That, that's that's not what I suggested at all. First of all, we're not, the, the right isn't moving farther, right? We're not moving, asking companies to move, uh, in, to act in favor of right-wing per, uh, policy goals at all. We're just saying get back to neutral. So we're not moving further to right. The right. I think the left is moving further to the left, but also, uh, I, I didn't suggest in any way that e, uh, that uh, BlackRock supports all ESG proposals or anything like that. What I suggested is that with the proposals it supports, it uses all assets to support those left-wing ESG proposals, not as it should, simply those assets um, that uh, are ESG denominated while using the non-ESG denominated, supposedly neutral assets to vote against those left-wing ESG. But again, as, oh. a, as a professional money manager, I mean, don't we have to give them some benefit of the doubt with their professional expertise that they're doing this on behalf of their fiduciary duty? And if we suspect that's not the case, I mean, there's other legal remedies, right? If, if, they're, if we really believe they're acting in violation of their fiduciary duty, why not go that route? We'll, we will eventually see some, some suits like that. I suspect there are uh, um, there are the problems with the business judgment rule, um, but but I suspect that, that there will be some uh, some suits of that sort. But again, I go back to whether we trust them 
there might at one point have been a an inference of objective behavior and reliability, but that that inference, that presumption, um, has, cannot be held in the face of the fact that all of these ESG, um, that all of the proposals that, that BlackRock and all these other four uh, support are left-wing. They push left-wing uh, policy preferences. Larry's out there talking about climate risk being um, a financial risk. He's not out there talking about uh, the risks that arise if Western companies decarbonize according to political schedules and the rest of the world doesn't. He's not out there talking about the risk that there's not enough um, uh, of the, of the uh, relevant metals in the world to allow everybody to have uh, electric cars, uh, lithium, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so that it, there's a risk of the standards of living of the lower and middle classes, not just here, but worldwide, if we move to um, decarbonization too fast. There's not any consideration, there's, there's no effort uh, by him. And so far we've never, I mean, if you look at the results, still BlackRock and all the other four have never voted for anything but left-wing proposals, which is not to say they vote for all of them, but they've never voted for ones except the left-wing ones. Um, as, when that's the 100% track record, I think any, um, any presumption of objectivity has to fly out the window. But I, I feel like I've seen in some of the responses, uh, you mentioned proposals definitely moving further to the left. And, you know, BlackRock's position has been that, you know, we don't believe that, um, you know, it's appropriate to set some of these hard targets on net zero or in the case of the banks, you know, cutting all fossil fuel financing, you know, they'll definitely come out and say that, you know, we, we don't think that this balances the long-term interests of our shareholders or, or society. So, um, you know, I don't know if I, I would agree that BlackRock is, is fully committed to political end date for net zero without considering some of the other uh, impacts um, either as a, as a shareholder or on the customers. Doesn't BlackRock still, we were, we were speaking some time ago about one of the organizations that left NGANs or GGANs or what, you know, one of these G-Gans, organizations, yeah. its, its members specifically commit to um, pushing, forcing behaviors, like Larry says, to uh, achieving net zero with all of its assets by date certain. Isn't BlackRock still a member of quite a few of those? That's true. I, you know, I, I do think there's definitely been kind of a, a push as, as we've seen, you know, an, an exodus, um, particularly on the insurance side to kind of maybe not be so stringent, get, you know, not running afoul of, of antitrust rules. Well, but that's wait a, a second. You, you just asked, let's, let, why don't we give them the benefit of the doubt? Because they haven't made exactly the commitment that I just pointed out that they've made again and again. But they've, you know, they, they've continued to show that they'll take a, a balanced approach to transitioning in a, in a responsible manner, or at least that's that's kind oh, of no. the, the argument they're presenting. A balanced approach to all of this is actively considering and both publicly and privately considering as relevant financial risks, all of the financial risks connected with these considerations. So actively considering the uh, risks that arise from decarbonizing by uh, a political date certain, right? Not just pushing companies to be transparent with regard to the, uh, the carbon they produce and their scope one and scope two emissions, but transparent about the risks that arise from 
um, what they're doing on the carbon front, right? If, if transparency is good, they should be transparent about everything. Uh, BlackRock should be pushing companies amongst its other uh, uh, transparent uh, disclosures to disclose how much of the world's um, carbon that company emits and what it would emit if it followed uh, the way down to net zero and what the costs of every increment of uh, decarbonization by that company will be in terms of increased energy costs, uh, increased prices for consumers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the net effect that that will have on given various scenarios, not just the most climate catastrophe scenarios, on, on world climate. Because that information is just as relevant. Those disclosures are just as important to full decision making about what to do about carbon emissions and what to do about what energy sources to use. If your goal is complete and objective uh, disclosure of valuable, useful information. If it's partisan, you just want to know the things that push companies to decarbonize on political schedules. If it's nonpartisan, you want all the relevant information and BlackRock and none of the other four that we're talking about have ever pushed for anything except the partisan uh, decarbonization uh, uh, enhancing uh, disclosure. Never once. You know, aren't some of these proposals asking for what's what's the risk of meeting these these targets or not meeting these targets? I mean, doesn't that imply, you know, looking at the costs of of uh, the different let's say, climate scenarios out there? No, an immense number of them. Uh, I would, I, I'm not certain of this, but I would suggest that, I, I would think that the majority and perhaps the vast majority of left-wing climate-related proposals in the past few years uh, ask the company to just presume that everything in IEA 2050, I think it's called, is correct. Just just assume those models are, are right, and then and that you have to decarbonize by that rate. Now now consider the 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 dangers of not decarbonizing, right? And so that's not looking for objective and complete evidence. That's looking for um, biased from the jump evidence and evaluation and disclosure. But if even if you don't believe that the world needs to be net zero, but you do believe that. Um, government policymakers are pushing in that direction. Don't you have a responsibility to, um, you know, ensure that your business is aligned for those policies? Well, um, you, you're you're with Bloomberg. I saw a story six, twelve months ago uh, from Bloomberg saying China's ra- hugely ramping up its coal power production, risking the possibility of stranded assets. Well, no, the Chinese communist government is not uh, authorizing the development of massive, massive amounts of new coal plants. Within a couple of years, three-fifths to, to um, I think, three-fifths to four-fifths of the world's coal generation will be in the Pacific Rim. The Chinese government is not authorizing all of these things because it expects them or is willing for them to be stranded assets. That suggests what the, 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 the negative pregnant of that story was stranded asset theory is wrong because the Chinese don't, whatever they say at the, the COP, the COP meetings every couple of years, 
The Chinese government on the ground has no interest in decarbonizing. It's building giant coal plants. India has has, uh, said that it's not going to lose its chance to become rich like the the, the like the developed nations because um, it's gonna, going to decarbonize. And Europe last year, uh, ground zero for green is Germany. But Germany faced a long, cold winter after the the, uh, the, the problems created by, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And they, they started reactivating the, the dirtiest yeah. coal plants. So what needs to be analyzed, the risk is that stranded asset theory is wrong and that pretending it's not wrong puts companies that act as though it, uh, as though it's correct in risk. All right. So, you know, I don't want to end this on a divisive note. So are, are there any issues where we can see consensus from both the left and the right on, on how corporate should behave? Um, you mentioned China. Are there other issues um, that you think, you know, you would see some agreement with the left? Well, I don't know about with the left um, per se, but I think that in the wake of the UNC Harvard uh, decision at the end of June, the Supreme Court decision, I think that we're going to see more success on our side um, in, in getting corporations to agree Oh yeah, maybe this facially discriminatory this suite of programs that we have. Maybe we should uh, uh, back off of some of that um, and and uh, get right with the law. And I hope that the result of that decision will be that that we see less less pressure from by the left uh, to to force companies to to do what's increasingly obviously illegal and unconstitutional. But but you know. As I said, as, as I've sort of said a couple of times, the goal on our side is not to make corporations embrace right-wing values or right-wing uh, uh, political goals. Our goal is just to get corporations back to neutral. But the goal on the left is to push these corporations to, to ex, uh, embrace far-left positions just up and down the line. And so, you know, we'd love for there to be some part of uh, activism on the left is like, oh, maybe this neutral position is okay. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it would make more sense to get corporations just to do their do their business and then uh, l- let politics be politics. I'd love to see that day. Um, I hope it's coming. We'll see. In an era where uh, you know unemployment's very low, you know, continue some, um, you know, infrastructure is kind of having a bit of a bounce in this country and, you know, you see some non-traditional sectors that have been underrepresented in the workforce. I mean, doesn't it, isn't there a business case for trying to reach new um, demographics and, and try to get them in the workforce? Maybe not. Certainly, you know, I wouldn't advocate for discriminating or, or, you know, showing any kind of favoritism, but certainly expanding opportunities, let's call it, you know, whether it's, you know, programs that encourage, you know, I just saw the story the other day you know, encouraging women to get into the construction fields just because, you know, they're so desperate for labor there that, um, you know, they need to open their their roles up to kind of demographics that haven't been really considered before. Certainly, if any company has been turning away women who want to be construction workers, that's, that's obviously just as discriminatory as the new equity-based discrimination uh, that we're seeing so often, uh, so many of these companies. Of course, all discrimination is equally wrong, 
everyone, every American has the same civil rights up to the same level of, of protections. On the other hand, this notion that corporations should have an opinion about individual personal decisions about what careers to go into. You know, it's it's a more equitable world if more women uh, do construction. Well, the women who want to do construction ought to be treated just the same as men in, in determining whether they're qualified to do construction. But the idea that we have to engineer an equal number or, or an increased number of women in construction, not because women necessarily want to do construction, but because I don't even know how to finish that sentence. People should be allowed without discrimination to do the things that they want to and are qualified to do. Otherwise, corporations should should uh, should stay out of it. Stop stop with the social engineering. All right, I, I really appreciate that perspective, Scott. Close to wrapping up, but are, what are some of the other issues you think we should be looking for headed into the twenty twenty four proxy season? You know, we've had uh, a rash of companies, uh, well, with, with BlackRock, Glass Lewis, um, State Street, Vanguard, um, uh, who did I forget, ISS of the, of the five that we've been talking about. We've seen a, a lot more uh, statements recently of, of claims that these organizations aren't partisan, that um, they are looking to, to be neutral, um, particularly the, the proxy advisory services are looking to be neutral in the offerings that they provide and the way that they provide them and the way they analyze proposals. And so I think what I'd keep an eye on in 2024 is to see whether that turns out to be true, whether um, uh, the, the proxy advisory services and the big investment houses start to um, treat proposals that don't come from the left and that don't push left-wing uh, interests, uh, start, getting, start getting some support or any support from any of those five. All right. Um, thanks again for your time, Scott. Again, you can find more information on topics like shareholder proposals on the Bloomberg terminal by going to BI Proxy Go. Uh, if you have an ESG quandary or burning questions you'd like to ask BI's expert analysts, send us an email at ESGCurrents at Bloomberg.net. And thank you again for your time, Scott. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.